Section 27 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 18 Secondary Sexual Characters of Mammals Continued. Part 1 Voice, Remarkable Sexual Peculiarities in Seals, Odor, Development of the Hair, Color of the Hair and Skin, Anomalous Case of the Female Being More Ornamented Than the Male, Color and Ornaments Due to Sexual Selection, Color Acquired for the Sake of Protection, Color, Though Common to Both Sexes, Often Due to Sexual Selection on the disappearance of spots and stripes in adult quadrupeds, on the colors and ornaments of the quadrumana. Summary. Quadrupeds use their voices for various purposes, as a signal of danger, as a call from one member of a troop to another, or from the mother to her lost offspring, or from the latter for protection to their mother. But such uses need not here be considered. We are concerned only with the difference between the voices of the sexes, for instance, between that of the lion and the lioness, or of the bull and the cow. Almost all male animals use their voices much more during the rutting season than any other time, and some, as the giraffe and porcupine, are said to be completely mute excepting at this season. As the throats, i.e. the larynx and thyroid bodies, of stags periodically become enlarged at the beginning of the breeding season, it might be thought that their powerful voices must be somehow of high importance to them. But this is very doubtful. From information given to me by two experienced observers, Mr. McNeil and Sir P. Edgerton, it seems that young stags under three years old do not roar or bellow, and that the old ones begin bellowing at the commencement of the breeding season, at first only occasionally and moderately, whilst they restlessly wander about in search of the females. Their battles are prefaced by loud and prolonged bellowing, but during the actual conflict they are silent. Animals of all kinds, which habitually use their voices, utter various noises under any strong emotion, as when enraged and preparing to fight. But this may merely be the result of nervous excitement, which leads to the spasmodic contraction of almost all the muscles of the body. As when a man grinds his teeth and clenches his fists in rage or agony. No doubt stags challenge each other to mortal combat by bellowing, but those with the more powerful voices, unless at the same time the stronger, better armed and more courageous, would not gain any advantage over their rivals. It is possible that the roaring of the lion may be of some service to him by striking terror into his adversary, for when enraged he likewise erects his mane, and thus instinctively tries to make himself appear as terrible as possible but it can hardly be supposed that the bellowing of the stag 
even if it be of service to him in this way, can have been important enough to have led to the periodical enlargement of the throat. Some writers suggest that the bellowing serves as a call to the female, but the experienced observers above quoted inform me that female deer do not search for the male, though the males search eagerly for the females, as indeed might be expected from what we know of the habits of other male quadrupeds. The voice of the female, on the other hand, quickly brings to her one or more stags, and is well known to the hunters, who in wild countries imitate her cry. If we could believe that the male had the power to excite or allure the female by his voice, the periodical enlargement of his vocal organs would be intelligible on the principle of sexual selection together with inheritance limited to the same sex and season. But we have no evidence in favor of this. As the case stands, the loud voice of the stag during the breeding season does not seem to be of any special service to him, either during his courtship or battles, or in any other way. But may we not believe that the frequent use of the voice, under the strong excitement of love, jealousy and rage continued during many generations may have at least produced an inherited effect on the vocal organs of the stag as well as of other male animals this appears to me in our present state of knowledge the most probable view the voice of the adult male gorilla is tremendous and he is furnished with a laryngeal sac as is the adult male orangutan the gibbons rank among the noisiest of the monkeys, and the Sumatra species, Hylobates syndactylus, is also furnished with an air sac. But Mr. Blythe, who has had opportunities for observation, does not believe that the male is noisier than the female. Hence these latter monkeys probably use their voices as a mutual call. And this is certainly the case with some quadrupeds, for instance, the beaver. Another gibbon, the H. agilis, is remarkable from having the power of giving a complete and correct octave of musical notes, which we may reasonably suspect serves as a sexual charm. But I shall have to recur to this subject in the next chapter. The vocal organs of the American Mycetes caria are one-third larger in the male than in the female, and are wonderfully powerful. These monkeys, in warm weather, make the forests resound at morning and evening with their overwhelming voices. The males begin the dreadful concert, and often continue it during many hours, the females sometimes joining in with their less powerful voices. An excellent observer, Renger, could not perceive that they were excited to begin by any special cause. He thinks that, like many birds, they delight in their own music and try to excel each other. Whether most of the foregoing monkeys have acquired their powerful voices in order to beat their rivals and charm their females, or whether the vocal organs have been strengthened and enlarged through the inherited effects of long-continued use without any particular good being thus gained, I will not pretend to say. 
but the former view at least in the case of the hylobates agilis seems to be the most probable i may here mention two very curious sexual peculiarities occurring in seals because they have been supposed by some writers to affect the voice the nose of the male sea elephant macrohinus proboscidus becomes greatly elongated during the breeding season and can then be erected in this state it is sometimes a foot in length the female is not thus provided at any period of life the male makes a wild hoarse gurgling noise which is audible at a great distance and is believed to be strengthened by the proboscis the voice of the female being different lesson compares the erection of the proboscis with the swelling of the wattles of the male gallinaceous birds while courting the females in another allied kind of seal the bladder nose cystophoria cristata the head is covered by a great hood or bladder this is supported by the septum of the nose which is produced far backwards and rises into an internal crest seven inches in height the hood is clothed with short hair and is muscular can be inflated until it more than equals the whole head in size the males when rutting fight furiously on the ice and their roaring is said to be sometimes so loud as to be heard four miles off when attacked they likewise roar or bellow and whenever irritated the bladder is inflated and quivers some naturalists believe that the voice is thus strengthened but various other uses have been assigned to this extraordinary structure mr r brown thinks that it serves as a protection against accidents of all kinds but this is not probable for as i am assured by mr lamont who killed six hundred of these animals the hood is rudimentary in the females and is not developed in the males during youth odor with some animals as with the notorious skunk of america the overwhelming odor which they emit appears to serve exclusively as a defence with shrew mice sorex both sexes possess abdominal scent glands and there can be little doubt from the rejection of their bodies by birds and beasts of prey that the odor is protective nevertheless the glands become enlarged in the males during the breeding season in many other quadrupeds the glands are of the same size in both sexes as with the castorium of the beaver has well discussed the odiferous glands of mammals owen also gives an account of these glands including those of the elephant and those of shrew mice but their uses are not known in other species the glands are confined to the males or are more developed than in the females and they almost always become more active during the rutting season at this period the glands on the side of the face of the male elephant enlarge and emit a secretion having a strong musky odor 
the males and rarely the females of many kinds of bats have glands and protrudable sacs situated in various parts and it is believed that these are odiferous the rank effluvium of the male goat is well known and that of certain male deer is wonderfully strong and persistent on the banks of the plata i perceived the air tainted with the odour of the male service campestris at half a mile to leeward of a herd and a silk handkerchief in which i carried home a skin though often used and washed retained when first unfolded traces of the odour for one year and seven months this animal does not emit its strong odour until more than a year old and if castrated whilst young never emits it besides the general odour permeating the whole body of certain ruminants for instance bos muscatus in the breeding season many deer antelopes sheep and goats possess odiferous glands in various situations more especially on their faces the so-called tear sacs or suborbital pits come under this head these glands secrete a semi-fluid fetid matter which is sometimes so copious as to stain the whole face as i have myself seen in the antelope they are usually larger in the male than in the female and their development is checked by castration according to the desmarist they are altogether absent in the female of antelope subguterosa hence there can be no doubt that they stand in close relation with the reproductive functions they are also sometimes present and sometimes absent in nearly allied forms in the adult male musk deer motius motiferus a naked space round the tail is bedewed with an odiferous fluid whilst in the adult female and in the male until two years old this space is covered with hair and is not odiferous the proper musk sac of this deer is from its position necessarily confined to the male and forms an additional scent organ it is a singular fact that the matter secreted by this latter gland does not according to pallas change in consistence or increase in quantity during the rutting season nevertheless this naturalist admits that its presence is in some way connected with the act of reproduction he gives, however, only a conjectural and unsatisfactory explanation of its use. In most cases, when only the male emits a strong odor during the breeding season, it probably serves to excite or allure the female. We must not judge on this head by our own taste, for it is well known that rats are enticed by certain essential oils, and cats by valerian, substances far from agreeable to us, and dogs, though they will not eat carrion, sniff and roll in it. For some reasons, given when discussing the voice of the stag, we may reject the idea that the odor serves to bring the females from a distance to the males. 
active and long-continued use cannot here have come into play, as in the case of the vocal organs. The odor emitted must be of considerable importance to the male, inasmuch as large and complex glands, furnished with muscles for everting the sacs, and for closing or opening the orifice, have in some cases been developed. The development of these organs is intelligible through sexual selection. If the most odiferous males are the most successful in winning the females, and leaving offspring, to inherit their gradually perfected glands and odors. Development of Hair We have seen that male quadrupeds often have the hair on their necks and shoulders much more developed than the females, and many additional instances could be given. This sometimes serves as a defense to the male during his battles. But whether the hair, in most cases, has been specially developed for this purpose is very doubtful. We may feel almost certain that this is not the case, when only a thin and narrow crest runs along the back, for a crest of this kind would afford scarcely any protection, and the ridge of the back is not a place likely to be injured. Nevertheless, such crests are sometimes confined to the males, or are much more developed in them than the females. Two antelopes, the Tragelaphus scriptus and Portax picta, may be given as instances. When stags and the males of the wild goat are enraged or terrified, these crests stand erect. But it cannot be supposed that they have been developed merely for the sake of exciting fear in their enemies. One of the above-named antelopes, the Portax picta, has a large, well-defined brush of black hair on the throat, and this is much larger in the male than in the female. In the Amatragus tragelaphus of North Africa, a member of the sheep family, the forelegs are almost concealed by an extraordinary growth of hair, which depends from the neck and upper halves of the legs. But Mr. Bartlett does not believe that this mantle is of the least use to the male, in whom it is much more developed than in the female. Male quadrupeds of many kinds differ from the females in having more hair, or hair of a different character, on certain parts of their faces. Thus the bull alone has curled hair on the forehead, in three closely allied subgenera of the goat family, only the males possess beards, sometimes of large size. In two other subgenera, both sexes have a beard, but it disappears in some of the domestic breeds of the common goat, and neither sex of the hematragus has a beard. In the ibex, the beard is not developed during the summer and is so small at other times it may be called rudimentary. With some monkeys the beard is confined to the male, as in the orang, or is much larger in the male than in the female, as in the Mycetes caria and Pithecia satanus. So it is with the whiskers of some species of macacus 
and, as we have seen, with the manes of some species of baboons. But with most kinds of monkeys, the various tufts of hair about the face and head are alike in both sexes. The males of various members of the ox family, bovidae, and of certain antelopes, are furnished with a dewlap, or great fold of skin on the neck, which is much less developed in the female. Now, what must we conclude with respect to such sexual differences as these? No one will pretend that the beards of certain male goats, or the dewlaps of the bull, or the crests of hair along the backs of certain male antelopes, are of any use to them in their ordinary habits. It is possible that the immense beard of the male pithica, and the large beard of the male orang, may protect their throats when fighting, for the keepers in the zoological gardens inform me that many monkeys attack each other by the throat, but it is not probable that the beard has been developed for a distinct purpose from that served by the whiskers, moustache, and other tufts of hair on the face, and no one will suppose that these are useful as a protection. Must we attribute all these appendages of hair or skin to mere, purposeless variability in the male? It cannot be denied that this is possible, for in many domesticated quadrupeds, certain characters apparently not derived through reversion from any wild parent form are confined to the males, or are more developed in them than in the females, for instance, the hump on the male zebu cattle of India, the tail of fat tail rams, the arched outline of the forehead on the males of several breeds of sheep, and lastly the mane, the long hairs on the hind legs, and the dewlap of the male of Berbera goat. The mane, which occurs only in the rams of an African breed of sheep, is a true secondary sexual character. For, as I hear from Mr. Winwood Reed, it is not developed if the animal be castrated. Although we ought to be extremely cautious, as shown in my work on variation under domestication, in concluding that any character, even with animals kept by semi-civilized people, has not been subjected to selection by man, and thus augmented, yet in the cases just specified this is improbable, more especially as the characters are confined to the males, or are more strongly developed in them than in the females. If it were positively known that the above African ram is a descendant of the same primitive stock as the other breeds of sheep, and if the Berbera male goat, with his mane dewlap, etc., is descended from the same stock as other goats, then, assuming that selection has not been applied to these characters, they must be due to simple variability, together with sexually limited inheritance. Hence it appears reasonable to extend this same view to all analogous cases with animals in a state of nature. Nevertheless, I cannot persuade myself that it generally holds good, as in the case of the extraordinary development of hair on the throat and forelegs of the male Amatragus, 
or in that of the immense beard of the male Pithica. Such study as I have been able to give to nature makes me believe that parts or organs which are highly developed were acquired at some period for a special purpose. With those antelopes, in which the adult male is more strongly colored than the female, and with those monkeys, in which the hair on the face is elegantly arranged and colored in a diversified manner, it seems probable that the crests and tufts of hair were gained as ornaments, and this I know is the opinion of some naturalists. If this be correct, there can be little doubt that they were gained or at least modified through sexual selection. But how far the same view may be extended to other mammals is doubtful. Color of the hair and of the naked skin. I will first give briefly all the cases known to me of male quadrupeds differing in color from the females. With marsupials, I am informed by Mr. Gould the sexes rarely differ in this respect, but the great red kangaroo offers a striking exception, delicate blue being the prevailing tint in those parts of the female which in the male are red. In the Didelphus opossum of Cayenne, the female is said to be a little more red than the male. Of the rodents, Mr. Gray remarks, African squirrels, especially those found in the tropical regions, have the fur much brighter and more vivid at some seasons of the year than at others, and the fur of the male is generally brighter than that of the female. Dr. Gray informs me that he specified the African squirrels because, from their unusually bright colors, they best exhibit this difference. The female of the Moose Minutas of Russia is of a paler and dirtier tint than the male. In a large number of bats, the fur of the male is lighter than in the female. Mr. Dobson also remarks with respect to these animals, differences depending partly or entirely on the possession by the male of fur of a much more brilliant hue, or distinguished by different markings, or by the greater length of certain portions, are met only, to any appreciable extent, in the frugivorous bats, in which the sense of sight is well developed. This last remark deserves attention, as bearing on the question whether bright colors are serviceable to male animals from being ornamental. In one genus of sloths, it is now established, as Dr. Gray states, that the males are ornamented differently from the females, that is to say that they have a patch of soft short hair between the shoulders, which is generally of a more or less orange color, and in one species pure white. The females, on the contrary, are destitute of this mark. The terrestrial carnivora and insectivora rarely exhibit sexual differences of any kind, including color. The ocelot, Felis pardalis, however, 
is exceptional for the colours of the female compared with those of the male are moins apparentes le fauve étant plus terne le plume pur les raies ayant moins de largeur et les taches moins de diamètre the sexes of the allied phalasmetus also differ but in a less degree the general hues of the female being rather paler than in the male with the spots less black the marine carnivora or seals on the other hand sometimes differ considerably in color and they present as we have already seen other remarkable sexual differences thus the male of the Ontaria nigrescens of the southern hemisphere is of a rich brown shade above whilst the female who acquires her adult tints earlier in life than the male is dark gray above the young of both sexes being of a deep chocolate color the male of the northern phoca groenlandica is tawny gray with a curious saddle-shaped mark on the back the female is much smaller and has a very different appearance being dull white or yellowish straw color with a tawny hue on the back the young at first are pure white and can hardly be distinguished among the icy hummocks and snow their color thus acting as a protection with ruminants sexual differences of color occur more commonly than in any other order a difference of this kind is general in the strepsiceran antelopes thus the male nilgahu portax picta is bluish gray and much darker than the female with the square white patch on the throat the white marks on the fetlocks and the black spots on the ears all much more distinct we have seen that in this species the crests and tufts of hair are likewise more developed in the male than in the hornless female i am informed by mr blythe that the male without shedding his hair periodically becomes darker during the breeding season young males cannot be distinguished from young females until about twelve months old and if the male is emasculated before this period he never according to the same authority changes color the importance of this latter fact as evidence that the coloring of the portax is of sexual origin becomes obvious when we hear that neither the red summer coat nor the blue winter coat of the virginian deer is at all affected by emasculation with most or all of the highly ornamented species of tragalophus the males are darker than the hornless females and their crests of hair are more fully developed in the male of that magnificent antelope the derbyan eland the body is redder the whole neck much blacker and the white band which separates these colours broader in the female in the cape eland also the male is slightly darker than the female in the indian black buck a bisortica which belongs to another tribe of antelopes the male is very dark almost black 
whilst the hornless female is fawn-coloured. We meet in this species, as Mr. Blythe informs me, with an exactly similar series of facts, as in the Portax picta, namely, in the male periodically changing colour during the breeding season, in the effects of emasculation on this change, and in the young of both sexes being indistinguishable from each other. In the antelope niger, the male is black, the female as well as the young of both sexes being brown. In A. Sing Sing, the male is much brighter colored than the hornless female, and his chest and belly are blacker. In the male A. Kema, the marks and lines which occur on various parts of the body are black, instead of brown as in the female. In the brindled new A. Gorgon, the colors of the male are nearly the same as those of the female, only deeper and of a brighter hue. Other analogous cases could be added. The Bantang bull, Bosandacus, of the Malayan archipelago, is almost black, with white legs and buttocks. The cows of a bright dun, as are the young males, until about the age of three years, when they rapidly change color. The emasculated bull reverts to the color of the female. The female chemist goat is paler, and both it and the female capara agergris are said to be more uniformly tinted than their males. Deer rarely present any sexual differences in color. Judge Caton, however, informs me that the males of the wapiti deer, Cervus canadensis, the neck, belly, and legs are much darker than in the female, but during the winter the darker tints gradually fade away and disappear. I may here mention that Judge Caton has in his park three races of the Virginian deer, which differ slightly in color, but the differences are almost exclusively confined to the blue winter or breeding coat, so that this case may be compared with those given in a previous chapter of closely allied or representative species of birds, which differ from each other only in their breeding plumage. The females of surface pallidosus of South America as well as the young of both sexes, do not possess the black stripes on the nose and blackish-brown line on the breast, which are characteristic of the adult males. Lastly, as I am informed by Mr. Blythe, the mature male of the beautifully colored and spotted axis deer is considerably darker than the female, and this hue the castrated male never acquires. The last order which we need consider is that of the primates. The male of the lemur macaco is generally coal-black, whilst the female is brown. Of the quadrumana of the New World, the females and young, Mycetes caria, are grayish-yellow like each other. In the second year, the young male becomes reddish-brown, in the third year, black, excepting the stomach, which, however, becomes quite black in the fourth or fifth year. There is also a strongly marked difference in color between the sexes of Mycetes siniculus 
and Cebus capucinus. The young of the former, and I believe of the latter species, resembling the females. With Pithica leucocephalia, the young likewise resemble the females, which are brownish-black above, and light rusty red beneath, the adult males being black. The ruff of hair round the face of Ateles marginatus is tinted yellow in the male and white in the female. Turning to the old world, males of Hylobates hulock are always black, with the exception of a white band over the brows. The females vary from whitey-brown to a dark tint mixed with black, but are never wholly black. In the beautiful Serapithecus diana, the head of the adult male is of an intense black, whilst that of the female is dark gray. In the former, the fur between the thighs is of an elegant fawn color. In the latter, it is paler. In the beautiful and curious mustache monkey, Circopithecus cephus, the only difference between the sexes is that the tail of the male is chestnut and that of the female gray. But Mr. Bartlett informs me that all the hues become more pronounced in the male when adult, whilst in the female they remain as they were during youth. According to the colored figures given by Solomon Mueller, the male of the Seminopithecus chrysomelis is nearly black, the female being pale brown. In the Circopithecus cyanorus and Griseoviridus, one part of the body, which is confined to the male sex, is of the most brilliant blue or green, and contrasts strikingly with the naked skin on the hinder part of the body, which is vivid red. Lastly, in the baboon family, the adult male of Cynocephalus hamadrius differs from the female not only by his immense mane, but slightly in the color of the hair and of the naked callosities. In the drill, C. leucophius, the females and young are much paler colored with less green than the adult males. No other member in the whole class of mammals is colored so extraordinary a manner as the adult male mandrill, C. Mormon. The face at this age becomes of a fine blue with the ridge and tip of the nose of the most brilliant red. According to some authors, the face is also marked with whitish stripes and is shaded in parts with black, but the colors appear to be variable. On the forehead there is a crest of hair, and on the chin a yellow beard. Toute les parties supérieures de l'ocrisa et le grand espace nu de la face sont également colorés du rouge le plus vif, avec un mélange de bleu when the animal is excited, all the naked parts become much more vividly tinted. Several authors have used the strongest expressions in describing these resplendent colors, which they compare with those of the most brilliant birds. 
Another remarkable peculiarity is that when the great canine teeth are fully developed, immense protuberances of bone are formed on each cheek, which are deeply furrowed longitudinally, and the naked skin over them is brilliantly colored, as just described. In the adult females, and in the young of both sexes, these protuberances are scarcely perceptible, and in the naked parts are much less bright colored, the face being almost black, tinged with blue. In the adult female, however, the nose at certain regular intervals of time becomes tinted with red. End of section 27 Read by Sandra Estenson